Uh, let's open up in a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, you have invited us to the greatest mission on earth, the mission of taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Father, there is no greater mission, there's no greater work, there's no greater job than having that on our to-do list. Father, we thank you for the privilege that is ours to take that precious message of your salvation by faith in Christ to every creature under heaven. And I ask, Lord, that we would get excited about that, that we would be enthused by it, that we would actively look for opportunities to participate in the task that you have called us to do, to tell the world about you. Lord, bless this time of study as we open up your word, as we learn its truth, as we get motivated all the more to take your gospel to the end of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Have you ever noticed that uh, little kids, they will sign up for just about anything you ask of them? They'll sign up for anything. If, if a teacher asks, you know, for a volunteer to erase the chalkboard, she's got a whole slew of students. Oh, me, 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 me. Pick me. Pick me. I'll erase the chalkboard. I'll erase the chalkboard, right? Kids, they, they want to do anything. If you have any task, they want to do it. If you have any responsibility, they want to be the ones called on. If there's, if there's any opportunity for them to shine, they want you to call on them. They want to sign up. Uh, in adults, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit uh, different. You know, adults, when, uh, when we give out opportunities, give out, uh, 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 well, opportunities for something great, we, we kind of hesitate, we're kind of a little more skeptical. We don't raise our hand right away. We, we like to think about it and really contemplate and wonder if this is, uh, is going to be good for us or beneficial for us. Uh, but then, then we come to those commercial, uh, those infomercials. Now, how many of you, raise your hand, how many of you have signed up and purchased a product on the television because of an infomercial? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Oh, come on. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. All right. There's only, there's a little less than I anticipated. But you know what? Those infomercials, that's the adult version of what the kids go through, right? The kids, they're always wanting to sign up. Me, 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 pick me, pick me. The adults, they look at those infomercials and they go, I want that. I want that, right? And that's what my wife says. She said, honey, you can use me as an example. I said, okay, good, I will. Uh, my wife is like a little kid when it comes to some great product on the television. She's like, oh, look, the sham wow. Look what it does when you, when you shake it. Oh, my goodness, how many of you have a sham wow? Oh, Pat Mitchell, all right, Pat. Pat, does it really work like it says? Yes. Yes. Get it at the swap meet. All right, good, good. And by the way, I get a 10% cut on all those who buy Sham Wows today, so please sign up today. Uh, <laughs> Adults sign up for things too. They get excited about things too, just like little kids. Well, today, in the Gospel of Mark, I want to tell you about something that you need to get excited about. I want to tell you about something that you need to raise your hand and say, sign me up for that. Sign me up for that. That is an amazing product. That is an amazing idea. That is an amazing mission. I want to participate in that. That's what we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark. We're continuing our study here. This is not the last Sunday in Mark. This is the second to last Sunday in Mark. But turn to Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 14. And we are going to see today something to sign up for. Something to get enthused about something that we look at and say, sign me up. Sign me up. Turn to Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 14. We're going to go through 18 today, and we're going to finish the Gospel of Mark once and for all next week. It's been one year and eight months since we've been in the Gospel of Mark. Took a while. 16 chapters. One year and eight months. I hope that's, hope that's a good pace. Verse 14 of chapter 16. Here we go. It says this. Later, 
Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen Him after He had risen. Now, we've seen this verse before. We've covered it, actually, in the last couple of Sundays. But I wanted to bring it up one more time to just, again, grasp the depth of what we're reading here. We're looking at the eleven disciples, one less now that Judas has fallen, but we're looking at the disciples of Jesus Christ, and they hear the reports that Jesus has risen from the dead, and they don't believe Him. They don't believe Mary Magdalene. They don't believe the two that were walking on the road to Emmaus. They don't believe the reports. Despite the fact that they were told by Jesus, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. When they were told that, they didn't believe the testimony. Tom Constable writes this about this, uh, this verse right here. He says, The disciples had not only disbelieved the reports of His resurrection, but they had also hardened their hearts against the possibility of His re- resurrection. They knew it was going to happen. Jesus had told them, and yet when they were told in person, I saw Him. I saw Him. They said, no. No, that's not, that's not possible. It's not possible. Stubborn. Hard-hearted. Disbelieving. These men were stubborn. They, their hearts were callous. They, they just could not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Um, my wife and I, these days, my son is two and a half. And what do they say about the twos, right? The terrible twos, right? Well, what's that? <laughs> the terrible threes. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I hope not. Uh, I, the terrible twos have not really affected us all that much, we don't think. We think our son's doing pretty, pretty well for a two and a half year old. But there are times, no doubt, when our son is showing some stubbornness, is showing some hard-heartedness, he's very, very sluggish to obey when we ask him to the very first time. We'll ask him, Bennett, you know, stop standing on the couch. And it's like this. And he gets on his knees real slow. And then he's like... And then he gets down. You know, Bennett, bring that to me. And he's like... You know, everything's slow, everything's sluggish, everything's stubborn, a little bit hard-hearted. And what we do as parents when he's stubborn is we remove privileges from him, right? Uh, He doesn't get chocolate milk that night. Uh, Maybe he gets a little swat because he's being stubborn. But, you know, whatever the case may be, when he's stubborn, when he's hard-hearted, we make sure that he is not given privileges, or that he incurs consequences. Because we're trying to break his stubborn will. We're trying to break his hard-heartedness. We remove privileges from those that are stubborn. We usually try to give them consequences. What does Jesus do with these men? Take a look at verse 15. Verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. To the same men who were stubborn and hard-hearted, disbelieving the testimony of those around them that Jesus had risen from the dead, to those same men whom Jesus had just rebuked, He turned around and looked at them and said, Oh, by the way, I want to give you the greatest mission on earth. I want you to take My Gospel to the ends of the earth. What does this tell us? Among, many, among other things, it teaches us that the qualifications, friends, the qualifications for serving in the greatest job in human history are pretty low. It, it is. They're pretty low. Taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth is the highest of human callings, according to Jesus. We have no greater mission. And yet, he gives it to 11 men who just moments ago didn't even believe that he had risen from the dead. The qualification for you, for me, 
to participate in the Great Commission really small. Really small. And yet, so often we, we look at the Great Commission and, and we see, okay, Jesus wants me to take the Gospel to the ends of the earth. He wants me to spread His truth. He wants me to evangelize. He wants me to bring people into a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Ah, but I'm just not qualified for that. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Or, well, I'm, I'm just I'm tied down with family, with work, with school. I've got other responsibilities. You know, no excuses. No excuses here. Jesus looks at His disciples, the same, these same men who moments ago didn't believe Him, didn't believe in His resurrection, and said, get off your stubborn, hard-hearted bottom and get to work. Get to work. He knew their weaknesses full well and He didn't care. What about you? Are you giving excuses for avoiding the Great Commission? Are you saying, I'm not qualified? I... Jesus doesn't care. He doesn't care about your excuses. He doesn't care if you've struggled with your faith in the past. Maybe you struggle with aspects of theology in the Scriptures. He wants you to work through them. He wants you to take His message. The disciples were just now realizing the resurrection and He gave them the Great Commission. How, how immature do we need to be before Jesus entrusts it to us? I say it's when we become a believer in Jesus Christ. We're entrusted with the Great Commission. We don't have to be a mature believer to be entrusted with that task. We don't have to know our Bibles inside and out to be entrusted with that task. We can just now have learned of the resurrection and be entrusted with that task. Are you signing up for the Great Commission? Or are you giving excuses? And what is the message? What is the message that we are to take to the ends of the earth? Take a look at verse 16. It says this, Jesus said, oh, verse 15, He said to them, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Here it is. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Alright. Now, in this church, that's a peculiar verse. Because uh, Coast Bible Church has a history of, uh, in our doctrine... In our founding, throughout the history of uh, the teaching that's come out of this pulpit, we say very, very clearly, time and time again, if you want to be saved, believe in Jesus Christ, period. If you want to be saved, believe in Jesus Christ, period. But we see in verse 16, Jesus giving a little bit more elaboration on uh, this idea behind taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. He says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And he who does not believe will be condemned. That's a difficult verse. That's a difficult verse to interpret. This morning I want to give us just a, a quick little clue, a quick little hint on how you go about interpreting a verse like that. The best way to interpret Mark 16, 16 uh, is to begin with the end of it. Is to begin with the end of the verse. Take a look at the end of verse 16. At the end of verse 16, it says this, But he who does not believe will be condemned. So let, let's start with that. Let's focus in on that. And I want to bring up what, what, what's called a syllogism. A syllogism is you got a premise, you got a second premise, and you come to a conclusion. I want to take that last part of Mark 16.16 16 and give you a very clear, logical explanation of it. There's a syllogism here. Now, premise number one. He who does not believe will be condemned. Okay? That premise is basically an exact quote of the latter part of verse 16. So we, we know that to be true. Uh, it's in our scriptures. Jesus said it. Let's have that as premise number one. Let's make another premise. Let's make a second premise. I believe. Let's say that, that uh, we're talking about me here. Okay? I believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. Well, if I'm taking that second premise and comparing it with that first premise, what's my conclusion? I will not be condemned. Very simple, eh? It's not rocket science here. This is not rocket science. This is a very simple 
syllogism. Thomas 1, he who does not believe will be condemned. All right? Premise 2, I believe. Conclusion, I will not be condemned. When we start at the back end of verse 16, it helps us to govern and to limit and to more fully comprehend what the entire verse is trying to say to us. What Jesus is trying to say to His people through that comment in verse 16. And so whatever, whatever we're going to say about the beginning part of verse 16, it needs to be governed by, it needs to be limited by what we've just learned from the end of verse 16. Make sense? Alright. So now on to the beginning of verse 16. Uh, I want to start, as we, as we see that there, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. I want to start by asking the question, is that a true statement? Is that a true statement? He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Is that true? It's true. Right? Well, first of all, Jesus said it. <laughs> so if we all went, no, we would be on shaky, thin ice there. All right? We would have a problem. Uh, it's a true statement because our Lord said it. Um, but also because, just, just think about this for a moment, okay? Put your name in there, all right? Neil has believed, Neil's been baptized, Neil is saved. All right, that, that makes sense. That, that characterizes me. I have believed, I've been baptized, and I am saved. It is a true statement, the first part of verse 16a. The question is, how does it harmonize why, why is this notion of baptism included in that first part? And how does it harmonize with the rest of the verse and with the rest of the Bible, quite frankly? Paul speaks time and time again, hey, justification is by faith, it's by faith, it's by faith alone. How does this harmonize, this comment, the baptism comment in particular, with the rest of Scripture? Well, there are two historical options if we're not going to say that baptism is a requirement for salvation. And we don't believe that. So there are two options that we can say if we're going to stick to this salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. The first option is this. The baptism of verse 16 is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that occurs in all who believe in Jesus. And this has evidence in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 1, verse 8, John the Baptist spoke of Jesus coming and baptizing us with the Holy Spirit. And so it might make sense that at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we have reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And at the end of the Gospel of Mark, we have reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That might make sense. Uh, Lewis Sperry Chafer, a, a founder of Dallas Theological Seminary and a great uh, dispensational uh, theologian, he abided by this view. Um, and it's, it's, it's an interpretive option. It is one of the acceptable options, I would say, for understanding the first part of 16a. It's not my understanding of it, but I think it's a very acceptable option. The second one is this. The baptism of verse 16 is water baptism and should be understood parenthetically. Big word. That is to say, baptism is not required for, but should accompany salvation. Baptism is not required for but should accompany salvation. Friends, Jesus and His disciples, they didn't conceive of an unbaptized Christian. They didn't. It, it wasn't in their vocabulary. It wasn't in their vernacular. When, when Jesus and the disciples were taking the Gospel throughout all the land of Israel, the logical conclusion of those who believed was that they would be baptized. It was kind of like a, no, duh, of course you're going to get baptized. Because you've now believed in Christ for salvation, of course you are now going to go on to fully identify with Him in the act of water baptism. I'll say again, Jesus and the disciples did not conceive of an unbaptized Christian. It just, it, if you were a Christian, you got baptized, period. I think the church has lost that in the centuries that have followed I think many Christians have lost that in the centuries that have followed. Many Christians today, they, they, they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, but they haven't been baptized yet. Are they saved? Yes. They're saved. 
their, their eternal destiny is secure. But I, to those Christians who have not been baptized, I say to you, Jesus didn't conceive of that. He wants you to be baptized. In His mind, if you are going to profess faith in Him, you are also to be identified with Him in water baptism. That physical symbol of down in the water, dying to sins and rising up, clean, fresh, resurrected in the family of God. Jesus wants all Christians to be baptized. The Scriptures make that very, very clear. And so I do lean toward this second option. It's, it's parenthetical, but, but, but it's more than that. Jesus couldn't conceive of someone who wouldn't get baptized if they were saved. And so is it a requirement for salvation? No. Is it understood as, as almost part and parcel of that salvation experience? Yes, Jesus wants you to be baptized. I lean toward number two here, um, but I, I, I think number one is also an acceptable option. I, I, don't, think it, I don't think it jives with uh, other Great Commission passages. In Matthew, I think it's water baptism. So we should expect it to be water baptism in Mark. We should remember in all of this, friends, that Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is not nearly as interested in the doctrine of justification by faith alone as He is in getting people to become full kingdom participants. I'll say that again. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is not nearly as interested in the doctrine of justification by faith alone as He is in, become, in people becoming full kingdom participants. We see this at the onset of the Gospel of Mark. Look at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. A full kingdom experience. Chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the Gospel of the, of the kingdom and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. The kingdom is here. Enter in. Have a full experience in the kingdom of God. Repent. Believe. Become full kingdom participants. We see at the end, when Jesus said to them, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Believe. Be baptized. Repent. Full kingdom participation here. Of course, the sine qua non, the, 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 the simplest element is belief. Notice it's in the top and it's in the bottom. So we should understand here that the justification by faith alone is still there in the Gospel of Mark. Repentance is not listed at the, at the bottom in chapter 16, and baptism isn't mentioned at the top in chapter 1. But Jesus wants us to be full kingdom participants, and so He also mentions repentance, baptism, becoming full, fully invested in God's kingdom. Jesus is not one who sim is simply interested in saving people from hell, but one who beseeches us into the kingdom of God, becoming totally vested in Christ. And so we see repentance and baptism coupled with faith. Now what might we expect from full kingdom participants? What might we expect from individuals who are now spirit-filled, repentant, baptized believers fully identified with Jesus Christ. What might we expect from those kinds of folks? We might expect those believers who are filling themselves with the Holy Spirit of God to see amazing and miraculous things that God does in their life. And so we see it in verse 17 and 18. Take a look at verse 17 and 18. These are the signs that follow those who are fully invested in the kingdom of God. It says this, and these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. And they will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Jesus speaks of salvation in the fullest sense in the Gospel of Mark. And here we see Him speaking of spiritual power from God in the fullest sense in the Gospel of Mark. Spiritual power that Christians who are full kingdom participants can anticipate, ought to expect in this life. 
Jesus says that spirit-filled Christians, kingdom-focused believers, will be used by God in tremendous ways. In the name of Jesus, such persons will cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll not be harmed by snake bites and poisonous drinks. Get to that later. They will lay hands on and heal the sick. You're saying, well, just the disciples, right? Just the disciples. And it is as limited to the disciples, right? No. Quite the contrary. Jesus makes it very clear that such spiritual power will be manifested in those who believe, those who follow them. Take a look at this, the yellow there. These signs will follow those who believe. They'll follow you, disciples. In my name, they who follow you will cast out demons. They who follow you, disciples, will speak in new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it won't hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and the sick will recover. Limited to disciples? Nope. I, uh, I grow weary of hearing the theory that miraculous healings and casting out of demons was limited to Jesus or the disciples. Totally unfounded in the Scripture. That's a, that's a fabrication in a lot of uh, conservative Christian theology. Are we really to suppose that demon possession doesn't occur today? Are we really to suppose that the healings that, uh, that we've seen in our church, a non-charismatic church, a non-Pentecostal church, and yet we've seen God, we've laid hands on people, and we've seen them healed in this church, are we really to believe that that was just, well, that was uh, a result of natural causes, maybe? I refuse to believe that. John fourteen twelve says clearly, from the words of Jesus himself, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. And it's implied there, and gives you the Spirit. See, a Pentecostal or a charismatic church, uh, they read John 14, 12, and they start nodding their head. They read John 14, 12, and they get it. Uh, In their churches, many of these things, they happen. And they happen sometimes on a consistent basis. Uh, I, for one, I commend those kinds of Christians for their, their faith, their, their expectant faith in the healing power of God. I commend them for that. At the same time, uh, history has shown that, that such Christians and such churches can also uh, easily open themselves up to misusing or exploiting the healing power of God. And at times, the uh, miracle worker uh, is given more attention than the Lord. The miracle working preacher is sometimes given more uh, attention than the Lord is. And you, you and I have all heard of supposed miracles or exorcisms or healings that, that actually turned out to be fabricated or false. We've heard of those stories. A conservative evangelical looks at that verse, and um, by and large, they have no idea what to do with it. They have no idea what to do with it. Uh, Their theology of miracles, their theology of God's healing power, has largely been shaped out of a reaction to those who have exploited God's power. They've been taught that speaking in tongues and Demonic exorcisms, uh, well, that, that was relegated to the first century only. And so naturally, when they come to John fourteen twelve and read Jesus' words literally and plainly as they've been taught to do, uh, Jesus' words just don't fit very neatly into their theological box. I say, let's set aside some labels. I say, let's set aside beliefs that are reactive in nature and not based on the Word. Let us set aside preconceptions and with the Holy Spirit as our guide, let us come to the Word again for the first time, reading Jesus' words in John 14, 12 and Mark 16, verses 17 and 18, plainly, as we've been taught to do. And if we do that, I think we find in them a very real, a very much alive theology of miracles and exorcisms and healings 
but one that must be carried out with humility, orderliness, and always giving the credit to the Lord. Now, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Let's go back to the text. Okay, okay. Casting on the okay, casting on demons, all right. We, we can, uh, all right, second half. All right, uh, next one. Let's see here. Speaking in new tongues. Oh, okay. Wasn't that, there a passage in 1 Corinthians that talks about tongues will cease? Yeah, yeah, it's there, but I don't think it has anything to do with limiting it to the first century. Okay, okay, maybe they're speaking in tongues, but, it, but it's got to be done orderly. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, do it in an orderly manner. Uh, laying hands on the sick, okay, we've seen that. We've, we've done that in this church. We've seen it happen. Okay, we can believe that. But what is this talk about taking up snakes and drinking poisonous drink. What is that all about, right? And I know I'm trying, I'm trying to bring you along here, and I've, I've, I've brought us through casting out demons and, and, and uh, speaking in tongues, laying hands on the sick. Okay, maybe we can buy those, but what is this snake stuff and this poisonous drink stuff? Well, I have a snake here today. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> These signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. Some take this quite literally. i got a picture for you. This is a pretty fun picture. Are you ready for it? Oh, my goodness. All right. This is, this is the real deal here. All right. Let me, let me explain this. Um... From the most trusted online source of information, which is Wikipedia.com. All right, all right, congratulations. I wanted to share with you a little bit about modern-day snake handling. This is a real, this is a real thing. This is a real thing. Friends, snake handling or serpent handling, as it's often called, is a religious ritual in a small number of Pentecostal churches in the United States and Canada, and I believe also in a lot of African countries. Um, usually characterized as uh, holiness Pentecostal churches. Not all. Some holiness Pentecostal churches. They actually are a very small minority. The practice began in the early 20th century, in the early 1900s, in the Appalachian Mountains. And a man by the name of George Went Hensley, born in 1880, he was a Tennessee preacher. Uh, this man, George Went Hensley, was first credited with starting the snake handling movement in the Holiness Pentecostal Church. In the 1920s, he started this. He took Mark 16, verse 18, and he said, that's literal. And so what did he do? He brought deadly uh, venomous snakes into his church, and uh, he proceeded to show them what Jesus was saying in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 18. By within 20 years, there were over 2,500 snake handlers in the United States. Over 2,500 snake handlers in the U.S. Uh, at the start of the, of the turn of the millennium, 2000, 2001, there were about 40 churches known in the United States that practiced snake handling. 40 churches in the United States. So not, not a large group here. Uh, by 2004, it had made across the border. It was into Canada a little bit and in some of those churches. Now, I mentioned the, the Tennessee preacher, the, the man who founded it. His name is George Went Hensley, credited with the founding of the modern snake handling movement in the 1920s. Can anyone guess how he died? Snake bite. Snake bite. He died of a snake bite. In 1955, George Went Hensley handled the snake for the last time. And he was bitten, and he died on the spot in his church. He wasn't the only one. Did you know that in Kentucky and Tennessee, there are currently laws that prohibit the religious ritual of snake handling because of excessive deaths in churches where it's been practiced? In fact, in, in the state of Georgia, it used to be a capital offense to conduct a snake handling service. Capital punishment. Of course, the juries, they didn't have the heart to convict anyone, 
some of the legal scholars estimate that the juries were convinced the snakes would do a better job than the government of taking care of the problem. I don't know. I, I for one, I'm just going to wash my hands of that one. Uh, what is going on with this snake talk? What is going on with this poisonous drink talk? Uh, nothing else in Scripture looks remotely like what we see in Mark chapter 16, verse 18. Well, that's not entirely true. There is one story. Take a look at Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28 says this. When Paul, Paul is uh, shipwrecked on the island of Malta heading for imprisonment. And it says, but when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Verse 4, so when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. But Paul shook off the creature into the fire, and he suffered no harm. Now there is one very major difference between this story in Acts 28 and the words of Jesus in Mark 16. Does anybody know what the major difference is? What's that? The snake attacked Paul. It was involuntary. You see, if you look carefully at the words of Jesus in Mark 16, verse 18, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's actually picking up. It's taking up the snake. It's actively picking it up. Whereas Paul, in Acts 28, uh, he got bit. It was involuntary. It was not something that he was uh, looking to actively do. Paul was involuntarily handling a snake. Whereas Jesus, in verse 18 of Mark 16, is speaking of voluntarily picking up a snake. Now, remember that Jesus is saying in Mark 16, 18, that these, these signs, casting out demons, speaking in tongues, laying hands on the sick and having them healed, taking up serpents, drinking deadly drinks, what does he say about those signs? He says they will accompany, they will follow those who believe. That is to say, they should be understood as occurring with some measure of regularity, some measure of consistency to verify, to document that this in fact is a work of God. Such experiences should be relatively present in the lives of spirit-filled, kingdom-minded believers, Jesus says. But if that's the case, why does there appear to be no comparable instance of this in Scripture? If that's the case, why are all modern examples of these sign gifts often exploited by a handful of churches? Many scholars look at this verse and they say, see, all the more reason to discount Mark 16, the latter part of Mark 16, as the authentic ending to the Gospel of Mark. You might be saying, what are you talking about? Last week, we covered verses uh, 9 through 20, and we, we covered the, 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 the issue of authenticity. The last portion of the Gospel of Mark, verses 9 to 20, last week we brought up the issue that many scholars dispute their authenticity, dispute that Mark wrote it, dispute that it's the authentic ending to Mark, and there are a number of reasons why they think that, and this is one of them, verse 18. When Jesus says, talks about snake handling, this is one of them. Many assume Jesus simply could not have said something like verse 18. It would not have happened. Uh, I think that, I think it's a very, very difficult issue. I do think verse 18 poses a lot of problems for those who want to make it the authentic mark and ending to the gospel. Um, at the same time, I'm always of the persuasion that we need to be very slow to point to anything in Scripture and say that's inauthentic. Say that's not God's truth. We must be very, very slow to do that. Because, friends, once we point to one section, once we point to one verse, once we point to one story and say, well, that can't be God's truth, then we find ourselves on a very, very dangerous, slippery slope. We might find ourselves one day handling a Bible like Thomas Jefferson did, he had a Bible in his hand. The only difference was every miracle, every supernatural act of God had been crossed out. Well, the Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, was a deist, 
upheld naturalism, esteems deism and naturalism much more so than he esteems the supernatural recording of events in Scripture. He felt that, well, the Scriptures are embellishing here. And so he took a, a pen, took a, a quiver. What, 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 was, what was the English name? A quill, sorry. <laughs> a quiver? Uh, that's pretty pathetic. He took a quiver, a quill, and he, he crossed out all the miracles. Thomas Jefferson crossed out all the supernatural acts of God in the Bible. That was his Bible. I say to you, be very, very, be very slow to point to anything in God's Word and say, well, that couldn't be. That couldn't be the truth. Friends, that's a dangerous place to be. And so what do we do? What do we do with verse 18? We try to make sense of it. We try to make sense of it as best we can. How might we find verse 18 on the lips of Jesus? For starters, I think we should reconsider whether Jesus was intending for us to read the first part of verse 18 literally. You see, Jesus is often found quoting the Psalms and the Prophets. And in these writings, there were many times when hyperbole and when metaphor were used to communicate God's truth. Let me show you an instance of metaphor in Isaiah 43. It says this, Fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Now, we do know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 1-9, through 9, and we say, well, there's a fire story, isn't that what Isaiah is talking about? I, I, I find it difficult to believe that. Instead, I think Isaiah, through the inspiration of God, is using hyperbole, he's using metaphor to explain one very clear thing. God protects you. God protects you. He's with you. It is a sign unto you that God loves you because you could go through the darkest of times. You could be drowning in the river. You could be going through the flames. And despite the greatest of earthly trials, God will protect you. That's the message of Isaiah 43. We're not to take that literally. We're not to stretch it to the literal limits and test God in that manner. Surely we're to walk away from this, these brief verses and say, God will protect me. That's what I learned from this. What about Psalm 91? Here's something that's really interesting, especially the speaking of serpents. It says this, No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague Come near your dwelling. For God shall give His angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. And in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Verse 13. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot because He has set His love upon me. Therefore I will deliver Him, God says. I will set Him on high because He has known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him, and I will honor him. What is God promising in Psalm 91? He's promising protection for His people. He's promising protection, the protection of His angels for His people. Verse 11 and 12 should look especially familiar to you. Those of you who know your Scriptures, verse 11 and 12 of Psalm 91 are the same words used by Satan himself when he was tempting Jesus on top of the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. Do you remember the story? Matthew chapter 4. Satan brings Jesus up to the top of the temple, to the pinnacle of the temple. He's testing him. He's tempting Christ. And he turns to him and says, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Jump. Why? Your Scriptures tell you he shall give His angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they'll bear you up, Jesus, lest you dash your foot upon a stone. Satan quotes Psalm 91 to get Jesus to literally throw Himself off the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. But what does Jesus do? He turns to Satan. He turns to the devil. In Matthew 4, verse 7, he says, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now think about that. Despite the truthfulness of Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, the whole, the whole section there, despite the truthfulness of those words, 
that God will protect His own, particularly His Christ. He will give His angels charge over Him that His foot would not even dash against a stone. Jesus, despite the truthfulness of those words, avoids, avoids actively putting Himself in a compromising position just to prove that God will indeed protect Him. Let me say that again. Despite the truthfulness of the words of Psalm 91, Jesus avoids actively putting Himself in a compromising position just to prove God will indeed protect Him. He does not don't. Despite the veracity of Psalm 91. Now the parallels here, friends, in my opinion, are unmistakably clear. Jesus did not test the limits of the verses we see behind us. He did not test their literal limits by hastily applying Psalm 91 to a literal framework. He did not test its limits. So also, we ought not test the limits of Mark 16:18 by applying it to a literal framework. Jesus says testing God's protection to its literal end is actually sinful. He says, don't tempt the Lord your God. So also we, recognizing that testing God's protection is wrong, we ought not do it either. Jesus, in Matthew verse 4, He didn't jump. So also we, we don't jump off buildings or handle poisonous snakes or drink poisonous materials just to prove to ourselves or to others that God is watching over us. In fact, if we're to make the most sense of Mark 16, verse 18. If we're to make the most sense of it, we should read it in light of Isaiah 43, in light of Psalm 91. We should take it as a metaphorical example that God will protect us and that that is a sign to you. It is a sign to those who believe. It is a manifestation of God's truth that His salvation has been confirmed in you because He protects you. Because He carries you through the flames of the fire, the waters below, the poisonous snakes, the hazardous drink. When I read Mark 16, 18, to make the most sense of it, to not pull it out of my Bible and say that's inauthentic, I think it is best read as metaphor. Best read as an example of God's protection Jesus is speaking just like the prophets did. He's speaking just like the psalmist did. God will shelter and shield His own in a powerful manner. And it will become to them a great sign that reminds them of their precious faith in Jesus Christ. What do we make of all this as we walk away today? Well, I said at the start of this message... uh, Sign me up, you know. Sign me up for this. What are we signing up for? I want to show you what we're signing up for based on what we've read today. We, as Christians, are signing up for this. We are signing up for, number one, the fact that we are secure. We know that our faith in Jesus keeps us from condemnation and that God has promised to protect us. Friends, that is an amazing truth. We are secure in the Christian life. Sign me up for that life. I want security from condemnation. I get that from Mark 16, 16. I get protection from God in Mark 16, 18. Two, we are invited to a more abundant life now. Jesus wants us to experience the full myriad of spiritual blessings that come to repentant, baptized, spirit-filled, kingdom-focused believers. Sign me up for that. A God who offers me a myriad spiritual blessings. Three, we are empowered by God. His Spirit is working in us to confirm the truth of His Gospel through miracles and signs, according to verses 17 and 18. We're empowered. We're empowered by the Spirit of God. We shouldn't minimize the Spirit. We shouldn't relegate it. We shouldn't develop our theology of the Spirit in reaction to how it's been exploited by other Christians. Don't allow that. Don't allow that. Don't allow yourself to assume, well, the miraculous, it doesn't happen anymore. God doesn't do exorcism. He doesn't heal the sick. Don't allow that in your frame of reference just because it's been exploited elsewhere. Have an expectant faith 
that God can and does and will do great things. I believe the church in the West is starting to learn. They're starting to learn. We are starting to learn. Asian churches, African churches, man, they, they are well ahead of us in this. They are well ahead of us in this. They expect God to do great things in their churches. And He does. You should too. Sign me up for that. A God who heals. A God who performs miracles. Four, we have the greatest job. Jesus has given us the great commission to tell the world about the good news of salvation by faith in Him. You know, a lot of people complain about their job. Friends, guess what? You have the greatest job. The Great Commission. It is the greatest job on earth. Sign us up for that. And fifth and finally, sign me up for this. Even when we disappoint or fail the Lord, He still loves us and entrusts us with proclaiming His truth. The disciples, friends, they didn't even believe the resurrection story. And yet Jesus rebuked them, and then He said, Get out there. Show me what you got. I don't care how how you've disappointed me in the past. I don't care about your inadequacies. I don't care about your sins. Get out there and get to work in the greatest task in human history. Sign me up for that. Sign us up for that. Friends, next week, we're going to finish Mark. Also next week, I want to have a, a set aside time for prayer as a church. To pray for the sick. To pray for those who are hurting. The National Day of Prayer is coming a week from Thursday. And so in honor of the National Day of Prayer in our country, we're going to set aside time this next Sunday. In addition to a, a, a sermon, we're going to set aside time to pray and to ask God for great things. I ask that you participate with me in that. I ask that you sign up with me in this great Christian life that we have been called to. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, forgive us any time we minimize You. Forgive us for any times in which we take for granted the spiritual power that is ours when we believe in Your Son, when we are baptized in His name by Your Spirit, when we are indwelt by Your Spirit, to carry Your Gospel, to carry Your truth, to carry Your power to the ends of the earth. Father, we are Your representatives, clay in Your hand. I ask that You would mold us. I ask that You would reshape us. Help us to set aside preconceptions that we have, Lord, that are false, that are wrong, that are not in accordance with Scripture. May we be a people who expects You to do great things. Father, we look at our, our, our salvation We look at what You've offered to us and we say as a group, as a family, sign us up for that. You are a great God. And we want to expect great things from You. Do that for us in this church, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.